Hello, everyone. Welcome to February's Work Now and in the Future, DEIB Workplace Transformation. We will go ahead and get started. I know we needed to give a couple seconds for those of you joining us on LinkedIn to get into the LinkedIn Live. But welcome to Living HR's Work Now and in the Future. I am Natasha Poroskova. I am your host for today. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I am the brand inclusion leader here at Living HR. For those of you joining us, I would love for you to introduce yourself in the chat. Let us know where in the world you are. If you want to make some new connections, drop in your LinkedIn and give us a hello. We're super excited to have you. And so if this is your first time at Work Now in the Future, welcome. We're so excited to have you. For those of you who've been here before, welcome back to you as well. It's whether it's our first time meeting you or second, third, fourth, whatever it is, we are so excited to have you. We're Living HR and we reimagine work by designing meaningful workplace experiences where people are supported. And one of the ways that we do that, we lift humans both in and out of the workplace is by supporting our own communities. So for every work now in the future, we partner with a nonprofit organization that's doing good work and uplifting our communities. So today we are honored to support the It Gets Better project. For those of you who may or may not know, right now in Florida, there is proposed legislation that would restrict how teachers can discuss sexual orientation and gender in the classroom, going to the don't say gay bill. This bill would isolate LGBTQ plus kids, stigmatize the community, limit teachers' abilities to provide safe, inclusive classrooms, and just overall be harmful to LGBTQ youth. And so as a member of the LGBTQ plus community myself, this saddens me deeply. Our community should not be hidden, ostracized, stigmatized. We deserve to be celebrated. And that's why I'm honored to be able to support It Gets Better as our nonprofit partner today. It Gets Better project was born in 2010 when LGBTQ plus people and their allies all over the world uttered three words that would give rise to a global movement, it gets better. This global nonprofit reaches millions of marginalized youth each year through inspiring programming, educational resources, and access to an arsenal of community-based service providers. The It Gets Better project envisions a world where all LGBTQ plus youth are free to live equally and know their worthiness and power as individuals. So a link will be dropped in the chat to donate today. 100% of the proceeds will go to the It Gets Better project. So if you're in a place to do so and you feel compelled, we would love for you to donate today. And if you wanna share afterwards, people can donate all throughout today as well after the event. So we're gonna go ahead and get to our introductions now that we, we've introduced you to Work Now in the Future and our nonprofit. I wanna to get to introduce you to the humans here today. First off, I wanna introduce Elena Moeller, who is not one of our panelists, but our artist at Living HR. So you'll see her during our conversation, creating a work of art. She's already started, as you can see. And I just wanna thank her and appreciate her for designing this as we are in this conversation. So thank you, Elena, for your artistry. And our guest panelists today, the people we have brought for you all, we have Jose Peranian, Ryan Lathram, and Starlet Farrar. Starlet is the senior manager at Zeta Global. She is um, also the founder of DEI Champions, a virtual community focused on vetting resources for DEI advocates in need of thought partnership and community to build inclusive and equitable workplaces. Working in toxic environments for the better part of her career fueled her existing passion for creating spaces where everyone feels a sense of belonging. As a DEI professional, it is her life mission to create safe, equitable, and inclusive spaces for everyone. We also have Ryan, 
who is a diversity and inclusion leader with over 10 years of experience. Ryan is the Global Director of Diversity and Inclusion at SPIN, a micro-mobility company based in San Francisco. Prior to joining SPIN, Ryan was the Senior Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Wonderkind, a MarTech startup based in New York City. Ryan's passion for commitment to diversity and inclusion work is personal. He is a cisgender white gay man. While Ryan recognizes his identity carries a lot of privilege in certain spaces, his goal is to always use that privilege to uplift and bring others with him. Ryan's ability to be an advocate for employees while providing strategic insight for leadership has allowed him to create impactful and sustainable DEI initiatives. And last but certainly not least is Jose Peranian. He is a three-time TEDx speaker. He actually has a TEDx event this weekend. Uh, the winner of the Inspirational Speaker of the Year Award in 2017 and a Forbes featured stand-up comedian who has performed in North America, Europe, and the Middle East in English, French, Spanish, and Arabic. His talks about inclusion and resilience have gone viral online with more than 3 million views. He has spoken at organizations such as Google, Tesla, TikTok, IBM, Dell, BCG, and most importantly, today here with us at Living HR. Jose holds a Bachelor of Commerce and Psychology from McGill University, a Master of International Business from Queens University, and a Certificate in Diversity and Inclusion from Cornell University. So that was a mouthful because we have such an incredible group of panelists today. So thank you all so much for, for being here today. I'd love really quickly if you could go around, let us know, you know, introduce yourself on your own, give us your pronouns and uh, let us know where in the world you are today. So let's start off with Ryan. Hi everybody, thanks for the intro. Um, uh, my name is Ryan, my pronouns are he, him, his. I am currently, Located in Jersey City, New Jersey, which I was telling the panelists earlier, is the sixth borough of, of New York. Um, at least that's what my how my husband refers to it. Because um, when we say that, then people are like, oh, they have a frame of reference. When I say Jersey City, they think like all of New Jersey. And so um, I try to put a little context around it. But I'm, I'm super excited to be here. Um, and I can't wait for the discussion. Thank you, Ryan. Let's pass it over to Jose. Thank you, Natasha. My name is Jose. I'll start by mentioning that I have a s s stutter. Everyone's internet is working just fine. I am tuning in from Beirut, Lebanon. In fact, in fact, I would love for, for all the attendees to write their cities in the chat. And I'm very excited about having these conversation. Thanks, Jose. And yes, Jose is a comedian and we expect lots of laughs from him and all of our panelists today. So last, Starlet, introduce yourself. Thank you, Natasha, for the intro. Um, hi, everyone. I'm my pronouns are she, her, hers, and I am calling in from uh, New York City. I'm currently in Manhattan, but I reside in Brooklyn, New York, and I'm so excited to be part of this conversation. Thanks so much, everyone. So diving right into the conversation today, we're talking about DEIB workplace transformation. And we really want to talk about how we can put that in, in practice in every stage of the employee life cycle. So I'd love to start today off starting from square one 
not necessarily thinking about the attraction part of things, but the hiring and the recruitment process. So starting at that first stage in the employee life cycle, how can hiring managers implement DEIB in the recruitment process? Starlet, if you don't mind starting off with you since we heard from you last and, and all of you can jump in on this one. How yeah, to put DEIB. Um, I think one of the biggest ways would be in providing interview training for all of your hiring managers, for all of the teams that might be part of that interview process. I feel like that is something that's not discussed very frequently. We hear about employer branding and all of those things. And as important as those things are, um, they're only gonna be as effective as your team being very well equipped to be able to speak to people from different backgrounds um, with different skills and things like that. So I think interview training um, is a really important piece in showing your employees how to really lead the conversation to really focus on the skills that candidates can bring to the table and not focus on whether you have similarities or whether or not you'd be able to get along with someone. Um, I think that's for us, at least, and for me, I think that's a huge important piece. Yeah, I am um, plus one, Starlet, that's for sure. And I, I even would, I even would add like, having, you know, pretty robust interview training that, you know, speaks to, you know, how do we mitigate bias in the process, but also having an assessment at the end and like, you actually have to pass the interview training if you want to interview somebody. And um, because I often find, and I've heard, you know, there's this perception that like, if you're at a certain level in an organization, then then you're the only one that's equipped to to give an interview, when actually that's that's not the case. Like, I think if we want to also think about giving opportunities to a lot of people, but like, you got to go through this training, like you've got to know how to um, have a conversation with somebody, or you've got to know like, when to check your own biases when you when when you're interviewing. And so I'd like to see even more companies like implement, like there's an assessment at the end, you have to pass with like, you know, 75% and that actually gets logged in some sort of LMS system that you have. So we know if you are actually qualified to, to conduct the interview. Um, I also, one of the things that we, we talked about and I did in my last organization too, was um, taking a deep dive at the job descriptions too, because those, and, and, and the qualifications and the requirements. So that's often, like a window into an organization. So if you, you're applying for a job and there's like 75 qualifications and then there's 15 different requirements and it's really um, uh, discouraging to a lot of candidates because it's like, you know, there's some people that look at it as like, I need to check all of these boxes. And if I don't have them all checked, then I, I'm, I just, I can't apply for this job. But uh, so what we did was like, we narrowed it down to what are the five requirements and what are the five qualifications and that's it. And um, so really having, putting, making hiring managers, put them, putting them in a position to be like, what are your non-negotiables? Um, and what are those five things? And that's it. And that's all we're gonna, that's what we're gonna focus on. And we actually found that we did it with our, uh, we started with our, with our sales organization. We actually found a much more diverse candidate pool started applying for these roles and coming, and coming through the process because we were, you know, we were removing like gendered language. And, and again, we were like, we were saying like, if you have these, great. Uh, but what else are you going to bring to the table? And those were some of the questions that we would ask also during the interview process. I'll share a, a story about re recruitment. Naturally, we, we, we spoke about interviewing, which is the primary activity we associate with recruitment before the interviewing 
sometimes you'll interact with representatives of an or organization at an external recruitment event or a career fair. When I was in business school, I had attended this career fair. I recall having had a conversation with a representative at one of the firms. And when I started to struggle with my speaking, I recall him mentioning that I should look into large financial institutions because those tend to have special programs. And as you can expect, it was a very condescending approach that that recruiter had taken. And because my first impression and evaluation of that, of the inclusivity of that organization occurred at that event, in addition to training the, the interviewers, I would also add I would also add the importance of training any person who will represent the organization in the outside world because those will be the the first points of contact. Thank you for sharing that. And you all talked about different pieces of how much language matters. You know, like in your story, you shared, shared Jose that the person used special um, and how in job descriptions we can use gendered language. And it just shows that what we say really matters. And I think one of the things that is becoming more popular and more quote unquote normal in the workplace is inclusive leadership training and how do you lead people in an inclusive way is that something that your organizations do or that you've done as individuals to be inclusive leaders and use the proper language and and manage different levels of ability 100 percent, yes um i can't tell you how many times i you know, I'm doing a ton of research just to make sure I'm addressing things in the proper way to make sure that I'm not gonna offend anyone. And I realize, you know, with DEI, things are changing constantly. So it is sometimes hard to keep up, but I think wanting to keep up is the first step, right? You have to care about these things. You have to care about not offending people and being empathetic. So um, yes, that's definitely something that I, I do frequently. Yeah, same. Um, I, and I even like to not even use the word training. I used I like to use the word like workshop or, or learning um, only because um, I don't want people to come to a, a training and be like, and now I'm the most inclusive person in the world because I just spent an hour and a half with Ryan. You know, that's the, so, so really making sure that, again, being super intentional with language, um, Natasha, like you said, it's, it's important. And 
I've done a lot of work around allyship because I, and that's one way that I like to build this, in, you know, inclusion muscle with, with leaders and not even just with leaders, but with the entire, an entire organization, because I feel like that's a pretty um, core foundation to diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging work is and that because that allyship leads to like understanding why we use this language versus this language, um, understanding people's experiences, right? Also understanding that like, we, we can all call ourselves an ally, but that's actually not how it works. Like you have to be told that you're, you're an ally. It's not one of those self-identified things. And so if we give people a place to start with thinking about inclusion, um, and I think starting with, with, with understanding what it means to be an ally, what allyship actually um, looks like, and then even with empathy too, it, you know, those are, those are three things that I think are super um, critical for, for our leaders to be inclusive, for our employees to be inclusive. Um, and we talk a lot about too, and I've, I've spoken a lot about this over the past couple of years, just because I feel like DEI is like literally ramped up, you know, tenfold and, and we're learning something new every day is that inclusion is everybody's responsibility. It's not just the responsibility of, of, of Starlet, of Jose, of Natasha, you know, in a, in an organization that you, that you're leading, like one person cannot be responsible for 500 people's ability to be inclusive. We all have to understand what that looks like and what our, our part is. And some people maybe don't want to play that part and, and, and that's okay. And then maybe this, that organization isn't, isn't for you. And that's also okay. There's lots of other places you can go, but if we put the tools in place, um, whether that's inclusive, you know, uh, leadership or whether that's employee resource groups or it's, you know, um, anti-racism uh, training, those are the tools that we can provide to our employees to be able to understand what their role is um, and what their responsibility is to, for building an inclusive culture. And that's a great segue into my next question. And Stephanie in the chat uh, agrees with you. She said truth in, in response to what you shared. And for anyone joining, we have polls that are running. So we do encourage you to participate in the poll. Our first one just launched and we see our results of where does your company fall on the DEI maturity scale. It looks like our largest cohort is in stage two of exploratory gathering voices and inputs identifying gaps and barriers to equity and inclusion in policies and systems. And so hopefully today you get some ideas for moving that needle forward. But leading into this next question, I wanted to aim it over to you, Jose, talking about inclusion. As an inclusion expert, when we go into this next phase of the employee life cycle, once we've hired someone, uh, how do companies ensure new employees feel included and that they, a sense of belonging during the onboarding? Because onboarding is a critical phase for a, an employee and really paves the way for how the rest of their experience is going to go. So how do we incorporate inclusion specifically and belonging into that phase? Yeah, I would say it, it would be effective to openly speak about what the DEI goals of the organization are so that the new hire gets the sense that this is an ongoing journey that the organization has embarked on and not simply a vague declaration th throughout its marketing. And also, it'd be great if they spoke spe spe specifically about the 
areas that have been going well, for example, our ERG for women has hundreds of members from, from multiple offices worldwide. And also speaking about areas that might still need improvement. For example, we, we have not done a lot of work in terms of, of, of visibility, inclusion per se, and we're launching our, our ERGs and a mentorship program in the, in the next months. So having that, that sense that this, this is an organic and, and ongoing journey that the organization has embarked on. And one last thing I will, I would add is if the person who is managing the onboarding also speaks about what resources might be available in terms of, of DI initiatives that will also contribute to, to that, that, that sense of inclusion and belonging. One quick, quick example to, to, to conclude this example is if a person with a disability is uncomfortable with self-identifying as having a disability, they might not end up requesting the accommodations that would otherwise have enhanced their, their performance and sense of engagement. So when the when the new hire feels like there, there is deliberate effort that goes towards this, this goal, everyone wins. You mentioned in what you were talking about, Jose, about ERGs. And I know at Zeta, you have a Starlet up an array of different ERGs. How do you plug in new employees or employees that are with the organization and get them involved? And how did you go about starting those ERGs? Yeah, so uh, for us, we support, first of all, we support any employee that wants to start any ERG uh, because we want ERGs to be employee-led and we want them to be a representation of our employees and we want them to advocate for those needs. Um, so I think the biggest thing for us is just making sure that during onboarding, we're letting people know throughout the stage, like these are ERGs, this is how you can get involved. Um, and anytime I'm on a company-wide call or anything, I always make sure I reiterate to our employees, if there's any conversation or topic you want to raise, please reach out to me and you know we will figure it out. Even if it's something that we've never done before, uh, those conversations are worth having because you know it's important for us to make sure that every employee's voice feels heard um, and respected. And it doesn't always have to be in the form of an ERG, right? It can be a company-wide panel event that talks about um, some topic that hasn't really been addressed yet in the workforce. Um, so we really just wanna make sure that 
our ERGs are completely employee-led, employee-focused, and we make sure we give them tools, resources that they need to succeed. I think it's also important that your senior leadership is supportive of these initiatives, right? Because you can have you know, all of these programs and events, but if senior leadership is not fully behind it and supportive, it could fall flat and it, it could decrease um, engagement amongst employees if they notice that no one or no one on the senior leadership team really cares about what they have to say. Um, so I think for us, those are the biggest things that have made our ERGs successful. And we got a question from in the chat specifically around ERGs from Richard. Uh, he said thoughts on ERGs that are socially driven versus siloed, for example, anti-racist group versus black Latino groups. Charlotte, any ideas and Ryan and Jose, feel free to share as well. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is around resources, right? What, what resources are you providing for these ERGs um, and making sure that you're constantly getting feedback from them? Do they have actual safe spaces where they can talk about certain topics and not feel like they're gonna get uh, reprimanded for it or you know, receive backlash for that? Making sure that they have a safe space. And um, I know sometimes senior leadership team or um, manage, middle managers or maybe someone on that that employee's team is on might not be reflective of how they identify. So making sure that, that they have a community that they can identify with in the workplace um, so they can go um, and share those experiences with those people. I think that's really important. But I think what I've noticed um, in my experience is that if there are no resources then you know you just have employees that are trying to do their day job and then are also trying to push forward these ERG events and initiatives and that's really hard to do right we all have um, our day jobs that we have to focus on so making sure that they have tools and resources to succeed um, and making sure that any feedback that they share is going to be heard and they'll there'll be action behind it as well I I agree. I love. I, I feel like that that question that was asked also in the chat could be a whole. We could you could Natasha host a whole you know seminar on on ERGs right and how they're and, and all. One of the things that I've, I mean ERGs are a powerful resource and tool for for any or, or organization as long as they're um, set up how they should be set up, which is you know provided with resources. There has to be structure. There has to be guidelines in place, um, and there has to be commitment from, from senior leadership. And so when they're set up properly um, and they're being provided those resources, and whether that's you know budget for the ERG itself or it's paying the ERG leads, um, th that structure has to be there. And I know sometimes in like startup, startup spaces, you know, the structure, the S word is like not a word that people want to adhere to. But when we're talking about, I think, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, like you have to be deliberate and you have to be so intentional with that work. And so you have to do that same thing with employee resource groups. So give them a structure and then let them create based on what, what you, you know, give them that, the, the creativity to create those safe and brave spaces that are really um, important. Um, and I think out of that, you begin to, you, you, you can begin to tap into the, the, the social aspect of things. And that's going to be incorporated into the topics, the discussions, the workshops, the, the different things that they provide for the rest of the organization. Um, I've seen at different places where there's an anti-racism specific ERG um, but it wasn't designed properly from the get-go. And so there's there's like, well, we're just here for the Black employees, for example. Um, and that's that's who this anti-racist group is supporting. And so you have to be, so just be really intentional with, with how those are all, all set up. And then 
that can all be ERGs should be also uh, 100% on day one of onboarding, right? When you think if you're if you're creating a a 90 day onboarding um, program, which um, we had a, at a company I worked at called Jet.com uh, before it was acquired by Walmart, we had a 90 day we had a whole team dedicated to that, and the ERGs were a part of that. Um, and then at Wonderkin, my last company, we every month um, we had a uh, an ERG lunch where any new hire that started would get to come, get have some pizza, and meet the ERG leads, um, just in, as in a way of like talking about culture, talking about experiences, and also obviously it was like good recruiting to really get people to join the ERGs. Um, because, you know, if you, again, if you set up your ERG um, in, in a, with, with structure, you know, an ERG lead shouldn't be an ERG lead for five, six, seven, eight years. You know, there should be, you know, a two-year commitment, and then you provide that opportunity to somebody else. So the, so the way, to way to do that and make sure that that's successful is making sure that employees that are new to an organization understand the impact of employee resource groups. And that's really powerful if it's part and built into a, a, an onboarding program. Uh, I do agree that Richard's question could literally be be turned into a uh, separate event. This is this is an idea for the living HR team. I'll only briefly add to, to what has uh, eloquently been said that I was reminded of that quote: "You can do." anything and you you are by the way witnessing an electricity cut in beirut lebanon as we speak so there's a quote that that says you can do anything but you cannot do everything in the sense that Specificity does have advantages in terms of defining what the objectives are. And it doesn't mean that the ERGs have to be silos per se. If there is support from, from senior leadership, as well as events that are open to the to the rest of the organization, these e ERGs they they become relevant to anyone at the organization who wishes to to deepen their understanding of the lived experience experiences of these groups. And I agree with all of you that we could have an entire conversation. We could have a, a masterclass. I've been trying to figure out what the non-colonizer version of masterclass is. So if anyone has that for me, please drop it in the chat. But we could have a whole afternoon about ERG specifically. Uh, we did just have our next poll drop. What does your company need the most help on? Uh, hiring diverse talent, revising policies and practices, inclusive leadership training, communicating DEIB strategy internally and externally, reporting DEI me metrics or other. And if you have other, we would love for you to drop that in the chat. 
I do want to touch a little bit on one of the pieces or well, a couple of the pieces in this question, uh, which is revising policies and practices. This is something that we hear a lot about in the DEIB space. And oftentimes people are like, well, we don't know where to start. Where, where do we go? What do we look at? Do you have any best practices for how to re revive policies and practices with that lens in mind? I think it has to be a comprehensive team that that does that is involved in that process, and sometimes that also re requires external help um, to have it have a, a set of eyes on your organization that you know isn't already already embedded in all of that. Um, so I, you know, I've done it a couple of different ways where you know you take a cross-functional team to let's look at the recruiting process or let's look at the promotion process. Um, um, let's just look what our, what is our code of conduct say? What is our employee handbook? You know, those are all I think really important pieces where there's so much bias and um, and uh, you know racist language and and work and policies that can be there. And so um, looking at it cross-functionally, making sure you have you know. Not everybody that looks like me should be in the room making those decisions. You know, it should be pretty cross-functional. But I've also worked with uh, you. It's it's okay to work with external people. Um, it, uh, we can't be the experts in everything, and so I, I think it's great to have to bring in consultants, to bring in anti-racism experts, to to help you really break down those policies and and you know have that have that strong look at like yes, this is working. But when you look at your overall makeup, for example, of your organization, uh, it's not working right now. You're not following the policies that you have in place. So, um, and also understand that it's not something where you start the project on Monday and you should be you should expect to have it done on Friday. Like these need this. I, I think I've said it before too. It's like be as deliberate and methodical as you can because this is this is also affecting how employees feel like they belong at an organization and do they have the opportunities to succeed. And so you want to be. You know, as deliberate as possible when you're when you're taking a look at you know your performance review process or your promotion process. I think that's a great point. The performance review. So there's so much focus when we talk about DEIB and the employee life cycle in terms of attracting and recruiting, but there isn't always as much of that emphasis on retaining employees and we're seeing that's a huge issue right now with the great resignation and people being able to keep people and part of that is there aren't those proper ways to meet with your employees and help them develop and move forward so what are some ways that we can practice equity in the workplace when it comes to developing our people I'm happy to go first. I think one of the biggest ways would be mentorship um, and career development, right? I think one of the biggest things, and this is, I'm speaking from, from my own personal experience too. I, when I work for a company, I wanna make sure that I do have the flexibility and the opportunities to succeed and uh, you know, um, sharpen certain skills that I may not be able to do in my, in my day job. Be, just know that I have the support to push myself, right? Uh, and I think, with a mentorship program, that's a really good way to, you know, increase retention, right? People um, want to know that they have someone that they can go to, a confidant, um, someone who also works at the company who might be on the senior leadership team who can help guide them on what their best next career move is, right? And I think one of the biggest things um, that this isn't really discussed often, but when, you know, when people leave a company, usually it's 
seen as a bad thing, right? But I think the goal is that you should want your employees to grow. You should be giving them um, the tools and the education to be able to create new skills for themselves and really push themselves. So if, you know, if there's another opportunity that is more in line with where they are in their next step of their journey, that that should be celebrated because it means as an employer, you did your job, right? Um, not, I don't think people are expected to work for a company for, for 20 years. Um, and so I think mentorship program, making sure that there's career development, professional development opportunities available for your employees is, is a huge um, impact on retention. Can we just uh, oh sorry oh, go ahead Ryan go ahead no I I I could not agree more with what Starlet said too and and I mean building an equitable I feel like building an equitable workplace is like the goal I mean that's the I mean we have to have equity in the workplace and you know there's just a lot of us a lot of organizations that's we're struggling with that and 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 are currently you know in the process of making sure that everything from benefits to perks to performance reviews to access to opportunities whether that's like working on a, pro a cross-functional project or like getting an opportunity to, to be represented on a, on a panel um like that's that's why i feel like organizations are right now too in order to make sure that like as this great resignation is is happening we're not reactionary we're being proactive and already you know providing the the tools and the resources that our employees need to feel like like feel like they they belong because we can have the most, you know, non-biased job description on the planet um, to attract talent, but if they get here and it, we still don't have our house fixed, then they're not going to be here for more than ninety days, right? They're gonna, they're gonna, we're already, we're already gonna lose them, and so we just need to make sure that, as best that we can, that you know, you think about the benefits. Like, our, if we have a, if if you're employee base is, is more Gen Z than it is Gen X, like, but your benefits are more, you know, Gen X than employees aren't going to, even with that part in particular, they're not going to feel like they're connected to the organization because they're not, you're not making it an equitable thing for me. And so we just, um, I, 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 we talk about it, talk about it a lot, especially with like new organizations and it's, and it's yes, get the job descriptions right and, and fix, you know, and make sure that you're putting yourself out there in a, in a diverse and, and, uh, an equitable way, but then what are you doing to keep employees and and that and and oftentimes I think people forget about the benefits are just as important as like the the, the mentorship opportunities or like that the perks are just as important as the um, sponsorship opportunities as well. So it's it's comprehensive, right? It's not just one thing uh, because you know we're humans, we're complicated individuals, and uh, we need to make sure that we're being as empathetic and and inclusive as possible when we when we're when we're making our organizations equitable. Absolutely love everything that is being said. In addition to mentorship, which research has has shown is is extremely effective, as well as as development and high high visibility projects and other types of re recognition i'll also add two two points the first one is when the employee is looking up at the senior leadership do they feel, do they feel 
represented. If they do not, they might implicitly come to the conclusion that this is not an organization where they might have these, these opportunities for, for big leaps and big advancement. Uh, this, of course, takes, takes time. And the, and the last thing I'll add about this point is that ultimately, uh, ultimately, our experiences at work are shaped by our line managers and no amount of practices will suffice on their own if the person doesn't get that their line manager is implementing these DI practices or is committed to f fostering this inclusive c c climate. Thanks for getting to that question that was dropped in the chat, Jose. Not only do we have expert panelists today, we have ex expert question askers. You are asking incredible questions. Uh, and in the chat, Vernita had said, leaders as well as line level employees who are change and inclusion advocates for a more inclusive work workforce often face challenges or backlash from tenured executive leaders who want to maintain what they feel is the best quote cultural fit or cultural environment, which is a mindset that excludes certain individu individuals who could make a valuable contribution to success of the company. So what actions can be taken to get those leaders to see the value of creating a more inclusive work environment and culture. So. I appreciate you sharing that, Jose. Is there, Ryan or Starlet, would you like to add anything else to that? Um, yeah, meeting leaders where they are is, is uh, and, and educating them and bringing them, and bringing them awareness. I don't know if I said that right. Um, I feel like is, it's, it's, uh, it's a very challenging, I'm trying to say this in a, I'm trying to be PC, but I don't, I guess I don't have to be. Um, it's it's challenging, right? There, you know, there. Um, oftentimes, the people that are in those positions of power look just like me, and so they have very. I mean, that doesn't mean that they're not allies, and that doesn't mean that they um, aren't supportive of of the DEI work. But it's more than just that. When you are in that, when you have that much um, power in an organization, um, I've tried to do it many different ways. That I, I I always definitely lead with like trying to put myself in their, in their shoes. Um, and, you know, this is one of the things why I love the work that I do. And I think I'm in a unique position as a, you know, a gay privileged white man in this work is that I can navigate spaces that other people can. And so I can speak up and I can, I can, I can, I can do the work um, that maybe some, some others can't. So I use that to my advantage as much as I possibly can. But I also think about like where these oftentimes men are in, in their position and how can I talk to them and get them to listen to what I'm going to tell them about what they are going to be accountable for going forward. And that's like talking to them about the, giving them the data as much as the data as I, as I possibly can, because, you know, they're thinking from a bit more of a, maybe a business mindset of like, yes, but how is this impacting my bottom line? Or how is this going to position us as a, as a great place to work? So it's, how do I come to them with data, but then also how do I come to them with like the sentiment and you know, I, I, and I have to do that from like real examples. And if we can, if I can pull that information internally, 
been great. But I also, you also have to realize that it's not just one conversation either, right? There's an expectation sometimes that like the DEI B professional is going to walk into the room and like magically everybody is a, is a DEI champion, right? This is, this is education. This is multiple conversations. And sometimes you're going to walk out of that feeling incredibly defeated because it was just a day when like nothing was going in, everything was bouncing off. So it's like, okay, we've got to, we've got to come back, um, come back the next time. Um, so that's how I try to approach it. Again, doesn't always work the right way, the way that I want it to, but I try to use my own privilege and my own, um, the, the, the power that I've been given to also influence these leaders. And I, I just want to echo, you know, I completely agree with you, Ryan, as a, as a woman who is a member of the LGBTQ community, but straight passing and also Latinx, but white passing, I, you know, it really takes, if whether you're in a privileged position or not using the platform and the opportunities that you have to help further those that you consider yourself an ally for, or those that you are a part of the community, because our voices really do matter. And whether you see it or not, it makes a big difference when you are pushing the envelope and being that advocate. Uh, Danny had a question in the chat I wanted to address. Uh, Danny shared, working in this space as a member of the LGBTQ community, I feel a sense of duty to my community to get DEI initiatives approved. So when I'm told, no, that's not approved, I take it quite hard. What do you do when you are told no to a solution you propose? Starla, do you happen to have a, any knowledge? Yes. Um, so in my experience, I've been told no many times. Um, but I think, you know, the biggest thing is not giving up, trying to understand where that no came from. Is it because there's miscommunication? Is it because, is it because the person doesn't really understand what you're asking for, doesn't understand the impact that this initiative would have for the company or for employees? Um, and I think making sure that, you know, when as a DEI advocate or a professional, any type of DEI work is emotionally exhausting, right? It could definitely be very exhausting emotionally, mentally. Sometimes, you know, you want to give up. But I think what's important is making sure that you have a community or a space or a friend or just anyone that you can rely on to bounce ideas off of, um, whether it's in the workplace or outside of the workplace, whether it's a, um, you know, therapist, just anyone that is going to validate your uh, ideas, right? The initiatives that you want to put in place. Because I know, you know, when we're told no, a lot of times it could lead to imposter syndrome. It can make us feel discouraged. It could make us want to give up and things like that. But I think it's important to just know that, you know, you have a support group, you have a support system. And as long as you, you know, surround yourself with people who are going to validate why this is important, why this initiative um, should take place, I think um, that's really important. That's how I deal with it. I always, you know, bug my friends or uh, my partner on like, you know, I tried to do this thing and this person just said no to me. Like, did, did I do something wrong? And I think that's normal, right? We're all human. We all feel like, you know, we make mistakes all the time, but it's important to have a support system whenever you're doing this, this type of work because it's, it's hard to do it alone. I could not Jose, just wanted a plus 1000 to the starlet's uh, comment on like having community like it's just it's so important at the end of the day in this work like i 
my husband's probably like, great, I get it. You, they told you no, and now you're mad, but don't get mad at me. But I'm like, but that's, but it's so important for me to be able to, to have that and then have a group of other DEI professionals too. I think one of the things that um, came out of the, the pandemic, at least for some of my DEI um, uh, peers was like, who's our DEI person? Like we need somebody to like, help us with with DEI and help us like have a place to vent. And so, you know, we would get together like every six weeks and just talk and vent. And but then out of that came like some really cool solutions to some of the issues that and challenges that we were facing in our organization. So plus 1000 to community, having that community. Thanks, Ryan. And I wanted to pass it over to Jose because I know I can't remember if it's in your TED talk or in one of the conversations we've had previously, but you know, your speech was one of your biggest fears and you know, you didn't let that be a no for you and you you pushed and now you're a three-time TEDx speaker. So what does the power of no really have in terms of leading to radical change? First, hi Danny. I I had met Danny previously. Uh, before I, I share a bit more about these personal insights from my own journey, one thing I, I have found is we might feel emotionally driven when it comes to these topics. Others who might have less of a direct link might be more rationally driven. And they're looking for what are the possible outcomes? What are the numbers, right? And sometimes something as simple as referencing some of the reports that have been done by McKinsey, by Accenture, by Deloitte on the business case for DEI, having that hard data to present along with the initiatives that shows the person that this isn't just a a personal, this isn't a personal passion project only. Yes, I do happen to be extremely passionate about this, but here is what we, we would be receiving as a result in terms of engagement and performance and so on. In terms of of your question, Natasha, I'll briefly give an, an overview. So I grew up avoiding speaking almost entirely out of the fear of being judged, the fear of being rejected for being different. And in the past four years, I embarked on this journey that resulted in, in delivering a few TEDx talks and performing stand-up comedy worldwide. And one of the exercises I 
had done along the way was I ch challenged myself to go to the mall every single week and I would introduce myself to 100 complete strangers. This exercise was mainly before the pandemic and repeatedly exposing myself to discomfort and put potential judgment and rejection, it certainly desensitized myself to, to these negative reactions in a way that, that made me realize that fear and action do not have to be mutually exclusive. Fear and action can coexist. So yes, every time we we put ourselves out there with a new initiative that we are passionate about, there, there is the risk of rejection and of ju judgment. If, however, we, we alter our mindset to turn those fears into action, unexpected milestones can occur. One last thing I will add though, is the importance, uh, I think it was Starlet who, who talked about having a, a support system. I would also add a self-support system, things like meditation and, and daily walks and, and time with friends. These, these things can, can contribute to our wellness as we do work that is emotionally taxing. Thank you for that, Jose. And Carrie said in the chat, beautiful. Fear and action do not have to be mutually exclusive. Fear and action can mutually coexist. So just elevating exactly what you said. And miraculously, we only have about five minutes left and we received so many questions in both the Q&A and the chat. So I do wanna be able to get to some of those before we wrap up today. One of the questions we got was uh, from Angelique in the Q&A about, she would love to hear more metrics about how companies are reporting DEI metrics. Uh, so Ryan, do you have any advice on that, how to report DEI metrics? Oh, yes. I feel like there's so many different ways. I'd actually like to present DEI metrics in this graphic way that um, Alina is putting together because that would be amazing. And I think I'm going to, I'm, I'm actually going to find a way to incorporate that because I've done it in dashboards before where there's like pictures and stuff, but um, this would be a cool way to do it. So I always feel like DEI metrics are, uh, you're sometimes at the mercy of your HRIS system too. And so if you don't have a, a robust system in place where you're able to track gender, race, ethnicity, um, you know, and, uh, disability status, veterans, um, parents, all of that stuff. Because I think it's important to not just look at the, the, the standard that's there, but, what, but the intersections, right? Because our most marginalized employees 
are those that come from those from our various intersections and we need to make sure that we're we're comprehensively supporting all of them too so i've struggled in the past i'm not going to be honest at some organizations to for accurately reporting data because everybody does want the data it's it's super important i understand that but i'm also not a fan of just being like well i think we have and i've been asked before which is really scary like well how many how many white employees do you think we have? And I'm like, I'm not putting my name to a piece of paper when I'm going to guesstimate how many white employees I have at the organization. I will not do that. But sometimes I get asked that because like we just don't have a robust HRIS system or or we also, quite frankly, maybe haven't created a inclusive workplace where employees feel empowered to self-identify too. That's the other piece too, right? I mean, we ask people self-identify, self-identify. We need the data because it's going to inform benefits and perks and all of these things. But um, employees don't know that. And if they don't feel that like they're being protected by saying that they are, you know, a, a black transgender woman in the workplace, if they don't feel that, then they're not going to self-identify. And so we have to, I think, first start with like making our making sure our culture is inclusive so that when we do ask people to self-identify and we can present the data and i'm a big fan too of like a data should tell a story right so it's not just like we have x amount of this and x amount of that what are those what are those what are those white gay employees saying how do they feel at the organization so that that we can bring all of that data to life so as much as you can tell that broad story um it's going to be more impactful and then going back to what we talked about earlier that's also that conversation that you're going to have with the leader is going to be more engaged and you're going to get that buy-in because you've actually painted this broad picture of like what are what are our employees like quote unquote look like but then also how they're feeling about uh working at this organization and then we have time for one more question from the chat and then i want to ask one more thing before we end uh, we had a question from Nicole about in manufacturing and distribution environments with lots of hourly employees, how do you provide a sense of equitable involvement that normally salaried employees can easily enjoy or benefit from participating in DEIB programs? Charlotte, I see you now. Yeah, I'm happy to answer that one. Uh, yeah, I saw that one earlier. I think that's where the inclusion piece really comes in, right? If these employees are working, let's say, certain amount of hours throughout the day, are those DEI initiatives happening throughout, you know, in that time frame? Just making sure that people, that it works for people's schedule. If you realize that, you know, they're not, they're hourly and they're not gonna be there as frequently as the salaried employees, just making sure that any of those events that you do also get their feedback on. Maybe there's an event that they wanna plan as well, right? Um, and just making sure that it works um, with their schedule, with their time frame, I, Zeta is a global company. So there's a lot of times where we have to make sure that when we schedule certain event, company-wide events and things like that, that it works for the majority of the group and it's in a good, happy medium. So I would suggest just making sure that those initiatives are as inclusive as possible uh, for where people might be located, what their uh, time zones are and things like that. And just making sure you get feedback on whether or not they would even want to join or plan their own event. Thank you for that, Starlet. And I'm going to ask one more question of all the panelists. What's one resource or key takeaway you want our, our guest today to take away? But before we do that, I want to, in the interest of time, say thank you to everyone who has been here today and listened. And we are so thankful for you. 
Again, if you feel compelled, we would love for you to donate to our nonprofit partner for today, It Gets Better, to support LGBTQ youth. Uh, that link will get dropped in the chat again if you feel like supporting. And we hope to see you again for our next event. It's on March 10th, and it'll be retaining your best employees. And there will be a whole lot to talk about with that one as well. So with that, what's one resource that you want everyone to take away from this conversation? Let's start with Jose. One takeaway. On the one hand, we have to create more empathetic and informed allies. It is, it, it is not enough in the sense that we also want to directly empower individuals across identity groups to own who they are and to take action in spite of the fear that might have been programmed into them, us societally due to being different. So, I do believe that no amount of niceness from the outside will, will be enough on its own if the empowerment is not there. And that's, that, that, that's something I, I can relate to my own, own journey and how things unfolded. And to conclude from me, I would love to actually get the poll from the audience. I am delivering my fourth TEDx talk on Saturday. I'm a bit undecided between two different titles. So I'll just share in the ch chat here the poll I had created on LinkedIn. It'd be great to get the input from this community. And thank you, every person, for attending and for for my for my fellow panelists and the amazing organizers. Thank you, Jose, and everyone. Make sure to participate in Jose's poll on LinkedIn. Uh, and Ryan, what is your your one piece from today? I mean, everything. Um, that's my one piece. Is is it no, I, just just yeah, just hopefully you took every bit of information and you're going to apply it tomorrow um, in your organizations. I think um, what I have learned since March of 2020, when the pandemic started, is that um, I thought I knew. I thought I was on this path to like I felt really good in my space of, of DEI, and then I realized immediately that I had I I didn't. Know I felt like I didn't know anything. Um, and so what it, because the world was changing, it changes every day, this, this work changes every day. So my, my advice to people, and, and I, have, I remind myself of this too, is like, keep, keep educating yourself, keep, keep showing up in different spaces to learn like this, like attend more, more of these um, to be part of the, the conversations. Um, uh, but also back to what Jose said is, is take care of yourself um, if you're embarking on this work, um, because uh, as as much as this like 
you know, I, I, I live it every day as a, as, as a gay man, right? I, and and as, a, as somebody that's part of a marginalized community. And so um, I have, you have to find outlets to um, get, get inspired and be inspired and continue to do the work. But at the end of the day and at the end of the week or at the end of the month, however you look at that is um, take care of yourself. Um, and I, I, I found that to be um, super helpful, whether that's meditation, like Jose said, or for me, I, I love a big, bold Cabernet Sauvignon at the end of the end, end of the week. And so, uh, and by, I mean the whole bottle, not just one glass. And that has also helped me. So just finding those ways that, that help you de-stress and de decompress, I think is, is super important so that you make sure that you um, can stay at that level that you need to be at to support your employees and your organization. Starlet, wrap us up for today. Yeah, so I 100% I agree with everything Jose and Ryan said. Self-care is definitely important um, as you embark on this journey and continue to do this work and making sure you, like I mentioned earlier, that you have a support system. Um, and I noticed a few people in the chat were talking about making a pivot into the DEI uh, career and things like that. So if you want to chat with me about it, I'd be happy to schedule a one-on-one -on -one and feel free to join the DEI Champions community. We're going to start having small community events where you know we can all just have a safe space to vent about all of the hard work that we do. So if you wanna be part of that, just feel free to reach out to me. Wonderful. Well, yes, make sure to connect with our panelists on LinkedIn, participate in Jose's poll. And thank you everyone for running over a few minutes. Your time is precious and we appreciate you. And to those of you listening to the replay, thank you for, for being here as well. Uh, with that, enjoy the rest of your Thursdays and we'll, we'll see you again next month. Bye everyone. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.